I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Calling all obnoxious, offensive egomaniacs, it's time for Must Have Seen TV, the podcast dedicated to the sitcoms of the 20th century, from I Love Lucy to News Radio. I'm your TV guide, Brett White, and this week I'm joined by Kirk D'Amato. Hello, Kirk. Hello, Brett. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for it's going good. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm honored to be a TV guide for this uh, this episode. Yeah, uh, you're my first um, internet international call. No, coast to coast call. You're well, coming- I, I mean, if this had been actually set in '66, this would be a big deal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're coming from the uh, coast of California. That is correct. I'm in La La Land, home of many, many great sitcoms through the ages. And also where all of them were shot, including the one we're doing today. Oh, really? Well, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm not too surprised, but, uh, I mean, New York and L.A. are like the two places where sitcoms are made historically. Yeah, I'm pretty sh- I'm pretty sure that this show was shot out there. I actually could be completely wrong, and it's research I maybe should have done. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure it would be, because, like, in the, I feel New York stuff was shot early in the early dawn of uh, sitcom stuff, but like I Love Lucy was shot out here because it's yeah. Desi Lou. Uh, yeah. So this week on the show, we are traveling to April thirteenth, nineteen sixty-six. The Singing Nun ruled the box office. You're My Soul and Inspiration by the Righteous Brothers topped the charts, and the Dick Van Dyke Show aired. Obnoxious, offensive, egomaniac, etc. Kirk, you must have seen obnoxious, offensive, egomaniac, etc. before. <laughs> Not before last night, no. Yay! Um, I watched it. <laughs> You're new to the Dick Van Dyke Show, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about the show with you, uh, because you uh, had just watched it for the first time very recently. Yes, yes. I think, um, I mean, in, the, in 2017, I watched a couple of episodes on the advice of some friends, including you, and... Uh, my boss, Summer, at BuzzFeed, she was like, I think you're really going to like Dick Van Dyke, and so I just uh, watched several episodes. I was I was wondering how you missed this show uh, growing up, because I, um, I grew up loving this show, because I had Nick at Night as a kid, and I would watch it all the time, and I was always obsessed with uh, whether or not it was an episode where he would trip over the ottoman or not. I would freak out. If, I loved it when he tripped. <laughs> I don't know why. It's a really weird, peculiar thing. Um, did you also watch a lot of Nick at Night as a kid, or did you not, or did you not have cable, or? No, we did. We had Nick at Night, and I watched a lot of old sitcoms. I think I watched mostly old sitcoms. Yeah. Um, as a kid, but for some reason, Dick Van Dyke is one that did not, um, reach out to me. 
Um, I don't even know if I knew about the Ottoman gags, although I do like that they kind of switch up the openings. I, I don't know if it's season to season or what, because I was like jumping around, but I think that's pretty funny um, of them to do. Yeah, there are three distinct openings. There's one where he trips over it, there's one where he clears it, and there's one where he clears it but then trips over the rug. Yes. <laughs> yes, I... those are the ones that I'd seen. And then he's always, like, shaking hands with people at the beginning. It's like, I guess he's just greeting his co-workers who are at his house before he's there for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> uh, season one has a totally different opening, which is like a jazzy, upbeat, very, like, conga-esque opening song, and all these, uh, 8x10 glossy photos yes. like, fall on a desk, and there's, like, a, kind of like a quick PowerPoint or whatever of all their photos. Yes, I, cause I saw the pilot, um, and I was like, oh, I guess this is just because they hadn't figured it out yet, or, like, this is just what they're gonna do for now. I didn't realize it was, like, the first season version. Yeah, and then the iconic opening comes along in season two and is there for the last four years. Uh, yeah, so this week on the show, um, we are talking about, uh, the Dick Van Dyke Show episode, Obnoxious, Offensive, Egomaniac, etc., which is a mouthful of a title. This is the 26th episode of season five. It was written by Carl Kleinschmidt and Dale McRaven and directed by Jerry Paris. Here is how Netflix describes this episode. When a mock script that's peppered with insults about the boss is accidentally delivered to Alan's office, Rob hatches a plan to retrieve it. Kirk, is that an accurate description of the episode? Yes. I mean, it kind of sucks a lot of the fun out of it, but yeah, I would say that's pretty accurate. Yeah, it's, it seems very cut and dry. Yeah, I, I mean, I feel that way about a lot of Netflix descriptions. It's um, a simple plot, though. I think it's a simple plot. It's, it's executed very well, and it made me think about escape rooms the entire time, because all of it's about breaking into various places. <laughs> uh, I also wanted to point out that, like, this is the 26th episode of the very last season of the show. Um, this, is the, this is the seventh to last episode of the entire series. Uh, does it feel... Watching this, having only seen a couple episodes, could you tell this was the last season or so close to the end? Does it seem stale to you? No. No, I don't think... I mean, it wasn't much of an... Even though it is an ensemble piece, like, it's it's like Mary Tyler Moore and then the two writers, like, going on this, like, heist. So, but it, it doesn't feel like... It's wrapping anything up, but to me, it just seemed like a chance for them to get into hygiene and then to have Dick Van Dyke do some weird um, physical comedy. Yeah, there, this episode is a lot of that. I think um, in talking about like what works about this episode is it's the heist aspect of it, and specifically the you know con- literal contortions that it puts Dick Van Dyke into. Yeah, I know you're a big. Are you a big fan of Mary Poppins? So I know you're a Disney guy. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah, I love Mary Poppins. So you know Dick Van Dyke. Um, I was there for Dick Van Dyke's, I think it was his 80th birthday. Oh. And it was just like this celebrate, like, they were like, by the way, today is Dick Van Dyke's birthday, and here's a parade. It was like like a little pre-parade in his honor. And we're like, oh, that's nice. And they're playing, like, a Mary uh, Poppins medley. And then he comes, he's not driving, but he's in one of those old, like, Model A or Model T cars, just waving at the audience. Oh. And it was so delightful. It was, like, really, like, I did not expect that. And honestly, he just seemed so thrilled to be there. And just, like, it was very sweet. So, yeah, I'm a huge Dick Van Dyke fan. Yeah, and I think this episode, I mean, the show is kind of built on the fact that he is an amazing physical comedian. I mean, 
when the fact that the first gag in almost every episode is him tripping over an ottoman or or not tripping over an ottoman in a humorous way, like the fact that he can make sidestepping a living room obstacle laugh worthy is like a testament to like his amazing physical comedian abilities. Um, did you did you think this episode did a good job of showcasing his uh, physical abilities? Yes, but it was weird because I mean, in the episode, he kind of sneaks through. It's like this weird secret passageway into his boss's office. Yeah, as um, as Buddy points out. That oh, that's how he gets the girls in. <laughs> yeah, it's, I thought that was actually a pretty funny like gag. I don't yeah. know his delivery. That guy's like such a comedian y comedian. Yeah. So I think even then they're kind of making fun of that, and I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> um, I just thought it was strange that like. They say like the tallest of the four, and so they're like, "Hey, why don't you go in through this thing?" And I'm like, "I don't know." Or said like the tiniest person. So I think that's added funniness. Is like he's like the worst of the four to do this mission. Yeah. And they're making him like contort through the secret passageway and like push his way. And every time he knocks something over, I'm like, "Oh, that's terrible!" Like, <laughs> it's like no, don't like you're you're ruining the office. You're clearly gonna get caught. Um, so I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, the um, I mean, the basic plot of the episode, it, it starts out with them in the writer's office with uh, Rob Petrie, uh, played by Dick Van Dyke, his wife, Laura Petrie, played by Mary Tyler Moore, and then the other co-writers on the Alan Brady show, the show they work at, uh, Sally Rogers, played by Rosemarie, and Buddy Sorrell, played by Maury Amsterdam. Um, the four of them are getting ready to go to a show. Do they say it's like an opera or just a show? No, it's the opening night of a play, and I'll be honest, because, like, I'm also a big uh, theater fan. I was like, I wonder what play it is. And then, two, like, I'm like, when do they get to the play? Like, they don't go to it, and it's kind of upsetting. <laughs> I was just like, I want to, like, that, I would be very upset if I had to miss, like, this opening. They got these tickets, they're in tuxedos, they're yeah. going to the opening night, so it's kind of a big deal. And I was like, that sucks, guys. That really, but, like, getting the script back is more important. Yeah, um... And while they're getting ready, Laura sits at the desk and she notices, she starts reading, like, you know, this week's script. And she notices, like, wow, you guys have really laid into Alan Brady, the host of the show this week. You're like, you know, they call him an offensive egomaniac, etc. Like, make fun of him being bald and wearing a toupee and stuff. And they say, like, oh, no, no, when he's, when he's mean to us. Any week that he gives us a hard time, like this week, we write all those things in there. We revert to childhood and take out our hostilities. <laughs> That's our copy. The one we give to Alan, we ink out the insults. <laughs> and Sally remembers, except the weeks that we're too busy getting ready for something and forget to do it, thus setting them on a mission to try and get this script back before it makes its way to Alan's hands and therefore them getting fired. Uh, so the show shows, uh, shows them bre- breaking into... Alan's secretary's office, then Alan's office, and then Alan's home, and then his desk. It's a really nice uh, heightening and escalation of conflict in this episode, I thought. Oh, definitely. I love that. I, I mean, it was like, I don't know, I, I haven't seen many sitcoms with this kind of a plot, and it did also have this escape the room, or like this, like, I liked it. I really did enjoy it, um, and it heightened beautifully uh, up until the end, which I did not see coming, and I went a little... Like, I'm very impressed that I was like, oh, man, I didn't think that, because at the end, I don't know, you want to... Go for it. it. People should have already watched this episode. (laughs) They should have watched it before listening to this, and if not, they should pause the podcast right now to watch, because I'm going to spoil the ending. Yeah. Uh, But they finally get the, you know, they finally in his office, they open his desk, he's not there, and then they turn the chair around, and there's um, Alan Brady asleep holding the script. And I was like, oh, shit, because here's another thing. 
I had not seen an episode with Alan Brady, and I, I thought he might be a uh, an unseen character. Like a Maris, yeah. Yeah, and so I thought, like, oh, he's just the never-seen boss that they always talk about and how much they hate. And so then I was like, oh, is this the first time we see his face? And I guess that's not the case. No, because um, in season three or so, the, the Christmas episode that the Dick Van Dyke Show does is an episode of the Alan Brady Show. Oh, it's, it's like it's meta like that. Like it's an episode of the show, and it's just them doing really beautiful and touching and sentimental and fun Christmas like sketches and just song and dance numbers, which they realized like uh, both uh, Rosemary and Maury Amsterdam. Like Maury Amsterdam is obviously an old vaudeville guy. Uh, yeah, you can tell. Rosemary was a you know a child singer and like prodigy. Uh, and Mary Tyler Moore is an amazing dancer and singer, and so they they realize, like, oh, we have this amazing cast, let's just do an episode that is just them singing and dancing, and it is one of my favorite Christmas specials of all time. So, he is in that episode. He, Carl Reiner, who is also the, like, head writer and creator of The Dick Van Dyke Show, uh, he is in the show throughout as Alan Brady, and... At this point in season five, like, you know that he is an egomaniacal, offensive egomaniac. <laughs> I didn't realize it was Carl Reiner. Yeah. Wow, that's... Huh. I mean, I knew that he was, um, like, a... I didn't know head writer, but I knew he wrote on the show, so, wow, that's really interesting. So he's a recurring character. Yeah. Uh, and I thought that was the perfect heightening to this episode, to be like, ah, oh, damn it, it's in the boss's hands, he's asleep, and then Rob's got to, like, the final challenge is to, to remove it from his hands without him waking up. And then, uh, I love, um... While he's, like, trying to get it out, uh, Alan Brady starts going, like, oh, give me a kiss. Like, he's, like, half asleep, like, oh, kiss me, Lillian, kiss me, Lillian. And you have to see, like, Rob, like, give him a kiss on the forehead and, like, affect a woman's voice and be like, oh, go back to sleep. Yeah. Very, very funny, very high, very good heightening. Um, and how did you think, what did you think about the way they get out of it? Because Alan wakes up and he's like, you're all fired on Monday. I'm on a bunch of tranquilizers right now, so I'm not angry, but I will be, and you're all going to be done for. And he leaves. And then Mel, um, played by, oh, jeez, I should, oh, Richard Deacon. <laughs> wow. Um, he is the producer of the show, and he's also Alan Brady's brother-in-law. So then after Alan Brady storms out, he's like, ah, no, he's not going to fire you guys because... He said, kiss me, Lillian. His wife's name is Margaret. <laughs> Did you like that final yeah. like, twist? I No, I thought it was weird. I really <laughs> thought, like, I mean, that's like to be a... Um, like, that's not something you would just forget at the end of this episode. That's something that could be carried on through the series. And I don't really know Mel's relationship with, like, I didn't know that they were related until that episode. Um, and I'm still not, like, Mel is the producer, so he's, like, the writer's boss on the show, kind of. Yeah, there's, I guess, I do kind of wonder if this is a comment on how shows were made back in the 60s as opposed to today, because throughout the entire series, Mel is a very, like, harried and put upon uh, tormented person um, yes. that is constantly getting attacked by the show's star, his brother-in-law. So, like, this feud they have, and also Alan Brady being a jerk and possibly cheating on Mel's sister is kind of a running thing. Um, so this, Oh, it is? Okay. Yeah, it's like this doesn't really come out of nowhere, but it does call into question, like, what exactly is his job as a producer? Because um, he does seem to be more of the middleman between Alan and the writers than anyone that's actually in charge. He's not really in charge of okay. anything. Yeah, he never gives, in the episodes I've seen, I was like, oh, well, he's not, even if he's their boss, 
he's low status. Like, they make fun of him constantly. Yeah. They are just, they don't respect him at all, and he's kind of just had to deal with that. Um, so I thought it was a strange ending. It, it, it was, to me, a, a, I guess, especially if this is the final season, it plays upon things we previously knew about Alan. Um, but as a first time, like, seeing that character for the first time, I was like, oh, what? I was yeah. just really surprised. I would have thought they, to me, the irony would have been, like, here's how I'd improve upon it, call Carl Reiner. Um, <laughs> they, they get the script, and he had either a blackout, or he had, he had one that never had the insults in the first place. Like, yeah. that to me would have been delicious irony. And they're like, oh, all of this work we've gone through, and they didn't need to. That would have been, the, the to me, what I would have done. But, you know what? I, I respect, I respect the, uh, the Lillian, um, blackmailing his brother-in-law uh, bitch as well. Yeah, I, that also ties into something I wanted to point out about um, I, this episode. Have you ever watched It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia? Um, no, I haven't. I'm sorry. You gotta, no, but but I, I will say, like, for people that are maybe are big It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia fans, this episode structure and the way it works feels a lot oddly like It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, which is a show that stars five total assholes who are bad people that make horrible decisions and do really offensive, disgusting things. But a lot of their episodes are, like, heists that go wrong, that just keep escalating. Uh, there's specifically one episode where they all <laughs> are trying to go on, like, a National Treasure-style adventure to rescue a vase that they think bad people want at an auction. It's a very preposterous setup. But the episode starts with all five of them, or, like, three of them, in the house of this family and trying to figure out how to get back out before they're discovered. And this episode really reminds me of that, except a much classier version, because uh, that brings me to the next thing I want to talk about, is, like, how classy this show is. It does seem... Like, you said you didn't watch it as a kid, and I can imagine, like, this show doesn't seem that appealing to children, I don't think. Like, I Love Lucy is, like, fun and hijinks and, like, Brady Bunches, bright colors and a bunch of kids. This show starts with a whole bunch of firm adults in their, like, 30s and 40s getting ready to go see a play. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and they're just, they're in black ties, they can, like, tie as a bow tie, which as we both have discussed in real life. It's not easy. No. Uh, it's, it, it takes a lot of practice, and he kind of just does it, and you're like, oh, wow, that's, that's impressive. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know, it is classy. I don't know if it would have the appeal, I mean, you watched it as a kid, so you have a sophisticated palate. Yeah. But, you know, I'm definitely. watching, like, Mama's Family was a big thing, but also I would watch, like, All in the Family and stuff like that, so, it, uh, but for some reason, I don't know if it was, like, black and white uh, sitcoms, I, I didn't really just watch a lot of them, um, but yeah, it is classy, they're sophisticated people with, I mean, not that their humor is, like, on a Frasier level of wit, it's just, like, you know, classic gags, classic yeah. jokes, which I also am a huge fan of, I will love those, you know, for the rest of my life. Um, yeah, I wrote down a bunch of. I wrote down a bunch of my favorite like buddy, like one-liners. Like he says, like see. Oh, there's something about seeing it in print that's much better than hearing it in spoken. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That was good. That's a good line. Uh, I also like the one where they're talking about all the stuff that is built into Alan Brady's office. Yeah. You know, he's got a whole wall of built-in gadgets: the TV, the stereo, hi-fi bar, and yeah, and a secretary. Yeah, but she's not built in. He just built. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, and then he takes a face. He does a yeah. um, a gooey, but there is a phrase that the Marx Brothers would use. Uh, a, shoot, I don't know, but whenever 
their bits were not going well. They would have Harpo throw a face, and he does it in all of his movies this way, like crosses his eyes and like sticks out his tongue. It's just like mugging for the camera. Yeah. And is it like a, a Zuki? I forgot what they called it, but like I love that. I just love when you punch me and the joke that's pretty jokey. Like it's clearly like here's the punchline, yeah. and then you're like waving at the audience. Like I did this. <laughs> I did this. Is yeah. what I did. <laughs> And actually, in the Marx Brothers, I forget which movie, they're like, cut the cards, and then he cuts them, like, with the, pulls out a cleaver and cuts it, and then he waves. <laughs> that's, that's pretty great. <laughs> it's, it, that, to me, is my, that's my favorite type of comedy, for some reason. I, I find it just, it, it tickles my funny bone, Brett. Yeah, mine too. I mean, like, Buddy is one of my favorite characters in sitcom history. Because he... That doesn't surprise me. I feel that that is a role that would gravitate towards you and me because it is like the jokey... Yeah. Like, he just gets good... He just gets, like, the jokey lines. Yeah, uh... There's another line, um, when... For some reason, at the end... I guess it's because, at this point, like, shows didn't expect viewers to come back every single week. I mean, this is 1966, so there's not really much continuity between episodes. Like, even the fact that this is the last season isn't something that the show would acknowledge within the show... And so, in this episode, when uh, Mel is being like, yes, Alan Brady is my brother-in-law. He is married to my sister. And then, right after he says that, Buddy says, well, now that we've mastered the theory of relativity. <laughs> yeah. I like that line, too. That was good. Yeah. Which is, like, really, co- like, it's both the show realizing, well, we have to explain really clearly for the ending, we have to set up very clearly that Mel is the brother of Alan Brady's wife. And so we have to really hit that home. But then otherwise, like, they also know, but everyone knows what a brother-in-law is, so we need to make this also into a joke to really, like, sell it. Yes. Yes. Um, and then they also have, like, they throw in other times when he's like, oh, it's my sister's house because they don't want to break in. Yeah. And I, I kind of, I thought it was quaint that law, that their ethics, or especially um, Laura, she's always like, you can't break into a house. And then even Rob is like, yeah, we can't do that. And to me, I'm just like, no, man, you might as well just do it. <laughs> uh, but, like, uh, then when Mel is like, oh, well, it's my yeah, sister's house. It's my sister's house, and I'm welcome there any time that Alan's not home. <laughs> you know, and I thought that was kind of like, they threw in that little joke to kind of give us the, first we get the explanation, and then this makes it also funny. Yeah. And it's also a, a good, it's also just a good joke. <laughs> Yeah, that. I mean, it, it also does just reinforce the fact that nobody respects this uh, producer guy. I think it's, I, I enjoyed that a lot. Yeah. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I also, um, things that didn't work in this episode, which again, I had this problem last week. I talked to Matt Little about the Friends, the one with all the poker, which is another episode. I'm like, that's a perfect episode. Uh, this one, I also have a hard time pointing out faults. If I had any faults to point out, I would be like, Mary Tyler Moore and Rosemary are underserved in this episode uh, compared to how funny and talented they are in other episodes, I would say. I can see that totally, because they don't do that much. And it is weird that, like, um, I was like, why is Laura even here? And I guess, oh, okay, she's going to the play with them. And then, like, she's in their house. And then Alan Brady's like, oh, hi, Laura. Like, he's kind of okay with her being there. And I was like, yeah, her, 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 her mostly role in this is to kind of be the naysayer. And I was like, that's not as fun. Yeah. Um, like, can I comment on another episode of Six Fans like, that I really, that I watched and I really liked is the Walnut episode. Oh, yeah. Um, that everyone had told me to, to watch. That's like basically a Twilight Zone episode. And I thought it was quite brilliant. She does a lot in it. Um, yeah. She's almost like the, the main antagonist. And I think it's really, really like, you know, she is obviously star material. Um, so I, I wish she did have a bit more for this episode. Yeah. It's one of those things where it would have been nice to have seen like Buddy crawl through, you know, the space behind the TV, and then, you know, uh, like, Sally try to get through the transom. I want to... I, the, this episode says the word transom more than I have heard in my entire life. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I was like, well, okay, I get what it is. Like, I figured it out, because um, I don't think we have those anymore, and I don't know the purpose for them, other than to maybe air out the rooms before there was, like, central air. Yeah. Um... But I did love when they broke the glass. Boy, I love, like, good breaking stuff comedy. <laughs> well, that's also the button of the episode is them, uh, Rob breaking into their office because they, again, misplaced their keys and him having to give the night watchman just, like, a rundown <laughs> of, like, yeah, well, this is broke, this broke, just a whole lot of things are broken. <laughs> right, and then he had broken down the door entirely to the writer's room, like, it came off the hinges. I thought that was pretty funny. Uh, I also wanted to point out and let you know, like, Rob breaking down doors, I realized, is a running joke throughout the entire series, because it becomes a running joke in this episode where, on three separate occasions, he breaks into a thing that they immediately afterwards are like, oh, we found the key. Which right, I, and then he hurts his nose. I love that joke. And then I realized that in one of the first season episodes, my blonde-haired brunette, uh, Laura dyes her hair blonde when Rob is away to, like, spice things up in their marriage. Like, I'm going to change things up. I'm going to be blonde. And then while she's on the phone with Rob, he's like, no, I love my brunette. I love your hair. I wouldn't change anything. And then she's like, oh, okay. And so he comes home early, and she's, like, changing her hair in the in the uh, bedroom. And so he's like, I'm going to break that door down. Like, you have to let me in. And it's another one of those jokes of him running, and then her opening the door and him just, like, running through the, through the uh, bedroom. I wonder if this is the first sign of, because breaking down doors and, like, running into doors and hurting your shoulder, yeah. to me, that's kind of a staple of physical comedy. It is. And I, won I wonder um, if Dick Van Dyke is, like, 
the people who perfected or refined it or if that had been something on vaudeville or something they would do in plays or what. Because, um, like, to me, it's, I immediately think, oh, and then Clue, they do it there in 1985. Oh, so, yeah. uh, it's good for him for breaking down doors. Although, it's not, yeah. I would not advise anyone to try that in real life. No. Uh, there's another episode where uh, Laura is stuck in a bathtub in their hotel bathroom, and he it's basically just like a one-act mono scene of Rob alone in the hotel room with her in the bathroom and him trying to get in there. And there's a lot of him trying to break down the door and doing that exact gag of, like, hurting his shoulder and, like, falling down. Uh, and so part of me does wonder if, for this episode, he's like, I've done a lot of jokes where I run at doors and hurt my shoulder or run at doors and they get opened. I want to do a show where I break down multiple doors. Mm. <laughs> or something. Yeah, I mean, it's like, let's change it up, especially, as you said, this is, like, the last season. Yeah, because that happens a lot. Uh, are there any things in, or is there anything in this episode that you think aged well, that, like, still holds up totally fine today? Well, I mean, the heist aspect really does, because you said they're doing it in Always Sunny. Yeah. Uh, to me, like, that's, it's great comedy. I mean, the, the sneaking is good comedy, trying not to be noticed, um, trying to figure things out, like, the arguing of it, and, like, I know arguments in comedy are not always, like, we're taught, don't, like, an improv, don't argue with each other, but I find it delightful. Oh, yeah. um, just everyone trying to, like, figure this out and then finding the keys afterwards. I, I think that's, you could do that today, and it would be amazing. I would just throw a dog in there. Oh, <laughs> they do that in, I think, in an episode of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I just remember someone gets thrown into the room with the dog, but the dog is, um, like a tiny corgi, <laughs> but they're allergic, so they're just like, oh, God, and I think that's so funny. Yeah. Um, yeah. I also think... So that holds up totally. Yeah, and I think that, um, I do wonder how this would get affected today, because now... Well, do you watch Crazy Ex-Girlfriend? Yes. Uh, I just literally watched an episode where this happened, where... I was like, how would this work today? Because we send emails. Oh, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend just did an episode in season one that I just watched where she sends a text to the guy that she's in love with telling him, oh, I love you. And then it's this whole, like, another heist thing of how do I break into his apartment to delete his text message? So I just kind of uh-huh. solved my answer of, like, or my question of, how would you do this today? Oh, shows are still literally doing this. I have to get this uh, bit of text away from a person before they read it gag and storyline. Yeah, you could definitely do it with, um, just like, you know, can't let them look at their computer, can't let them check their email. Yeah. Anything like that. It, it, it works perfectly. Uh, that's funny. I didn't, I didn't draw the comparison between that, uh, episode, so that's, that's really cool. Yeah, I just, I, it just came to me. Um, and I guess things that didn't age well, there is a, uh, Native American giver joke. Oh, yeah, they did say that. I remember that. I was like, uh-oh. Yeah, like, that's one of those, like, they didn't know better, although they should have. Thanks. Well, I mean, that term had been in use, I think, even until, like, the 90s. Uh, oh, until people were finally like, let's stop saying that. Yeah. I because, mean, people probably still say that. Yikes. Um, because it's like, uh, the joke is like, they gave him a script, and now they just want it back. Like, and, you know... <laughs> Uh, right, I think the setup is that they, they're like, we're not stealing it. Like, you can't call us a thief or a robber because we're not really breaking in to take something that belongs to them. We're taking yeah. something back that belongs to us. Um, I think that was, like, the, the setup for it. And I, I'm trying to think of things that don't really age well. I mean, I again, like well, like we said, like I would have liked Laura to have done more uh, just because Mary Taylor Moore is so good. Um, and she does really get to play that kind of typical wife role of, like, the nag and naysayer in this episode, which... 
throughout the entire series, Laura Petrie pretty much isn't that, which was kind of revolutionary yeah. at the time, that she was really the co-lead of this show that didn't have her name on it, that they hired someone that was super talented, great at dancing, great at singing, great at comedy, even though this was her first time doing comedy, and they wrote to her strengths a whole lot. Uh, I mean, you know the whole thing about her wearing pants and how that was super controversial, right? Yes, yes. Like, and that's, like, important. I, I think it's it's sad to me that people didn't want to, like, that women had to fight to wear pants on television. Yeah. And she fought for that. And it's, I think that's one of the reasons why the Dick Van Dyke Show is so well regarded and remembered is because before the Dick Van Dyke Show, there were family shows that were, you know, Father's Own Best and Donna Reed Show that were, yeah, where the woman wasn't really the comedic part of the show. And on this show, like, Laura is still, like, a stay-at-home mother who, like, cares for her kid and, like, you know, defers to her husband a lot of the time. But she still gets so much funny material on a show that isn't hers. And it's so refreshing and game-changing in a way. And and also the fact that they also have Sally Rogers in the writer's room and showing, like, a woman who is still single. Although her main joke throughout the entire series is always looking for a man. Which, Which is, I, it's a comedy, like, that is, I mean, even in my workplace, where, yeah. you know, we're all a bunch of funny writers, but people treat their love life as, like, a source of entertainment for others. Yeah. Um, but I do like, I, I thought she's great, because she's not the secretary no. uh, of, in the room, and she's definitely former, I mean, it's also to me, like, the, you know, her, her status. Like, she's definitely not the low man on the totem pole. Like, I think that would be, uh, what's his name, Maury? Yeah. Or Buddy, no, more Amsterdam. Buddy, because he's, he like, and, but I think it's just the way it's written, and he's, he's often making, like, remarks that make him that way. Yeah. Uh, I think, like, I, I like that. I like their dynamic. I think it is very progressive and cool, because, you know, I have no idea what writer's rings were like back then, but to see that there's, like, a woman in it, that's, that's, you know, that's exciting. Yeah, that's something that would be rare to see that today. Yeah. I would like to know more about, you know, how what writer's rooms were like before this show, and if if them putting Sally in the writer's room was Carl Reiner acknowledging, yes, women are writers on these shows, we need to acknowledge them, or if it was Carl Reiner being like, we women should be writing, so we are going to put one in our show, even if there aren't a lot, you know? Which yeah. side of, was he being, you know, aspirational or inspirational? But I still, I love that character, and I specifically love the dynamic between Sally and Buddy, and the they have a really fun gag in this episode where they're just arguing about the pronunciation of Riffafi. Or... Boy, this reminds me, I saw a movie once where these guys broke into a jewelry store using an umbrella. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. That was a great picture. What was the name of that? Uh, Riffafi. Yeah, right. Riffafi. No, Riffafi. Riffafi. No, Laura, what was it? Riffafi or Riffafi? Top Cappy. No, no. <laughs> that was another good picture. That was Top Cappy. Yeah. And, this is and a... then they do it. Again, it was like Tokapi or Toka, which sounds like a Pokemon, but I know I like I know these are movies. Yeah, um, and they and they call them pictures, which I also love. Like you see that picture? That's a great picture. I love that. <laughs> yeah, I, I really do. I love uh, one of the reasons I love like It's Always Sunny and other shows. Is I love shows of dumb people having dumb arguments in that are non sequiturs. And, like, Sally and Buddy aren't dumb, but they are having a stupid argument at a very high-stress time. As Rob is, like, trying to break in through a transom, and they're, and like... And the struggling. umbrella bit, 
too, because he's like, well, what, how, what did he use? How did he use this umbrella to break into a bank vault or whatever? And he's like, oh, you know what? It has nothing to do with it. So I think that's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> that's like a pretty good, like, end to that conversation. Yeah. What do you think about the show business sitcom setting? Because the Dick Van Dyke show, I don't know if it's one of the first shows, but it is a show that is about a show. And that is a trope that we well, see. Well, so is I Love Lucy. Oh, yeah. I Love Lucy is yeah, also about like, show business. I, I mean, he's working in a nightclub as opposed to, like, on a, uh, a TV show. Yeah. What do I think about it? I like it. I mean, it, it makes sense. It, it, it's, it's just another type of workplace. Yeah. And then I guess it does give the, act, the, the actors an opportunity to, like, show what they're making um, or perform, like, this Christmas episode, which I will totally watch next Christmas, but so not before. No. I don't want to spoil it for myself. Not before Black Friday. Um, <laughs> I mean, what other shows take place in the entertainment? I'm like, 30 Rock 30 is Rock. a pretty recent one. Yeah. You know? Um, and SNL has often gone meta about it, like talking about the show within the, or like the backstage antics. Um, they've done sketches about that. Uh, so no, I think it makes sense. And it seems like, especially coming out of vaudeville into radio, into TV, like the stars making those transitions, if a show is about a, like, your show of shows with Sid Caesar or, um, I don't know, I'm going to blank on every specific, but any time they gave a star a vehicle, it kind of would make sense for them to just acknowledge, like, this is entertainment, and we're making, we're showing a, a show that has, the fact that it's a show is part of the entertainment for you. Yeah, yeah. I do wonder if this is one of the first ones to do it, or, well, this show also has a nice, uh, not get out of jail free card, but it also has this other half, which is the home life. So they also get to do, like, home plot lines. And you get to see the more domestic side. So maybe if you are, you know, in, you know, not on either, you know, either coast, New York or L.A., you watch Dick Van Dyke show and you maybe relate to the more, you know, home aspect of it. Whereas, like, I watch it and I'm like, I want to be a writer on these shows. Oh, interesting. Because um, I felt like it seems like it's just another job to them. Like, it's not like yeah. it's glamorous. Like, it's not like the writers are like, hey, we have, like, really, you know, high-paid, amazing jobs. It's just like, yeah, I've got to get this script out before the boss, like, he's right <laughs> in my back. And, like, yeah. I just want to get done by six so I can go home because Laura's, like, making a dinner uh, <laughs> and stuff like that. So I think even though it was that, that it doesn't seem like it's terribly, uh, like, this glamorous thing. It just seems like, you know, you put on your suit and tie because it's the 60s and you go to work every day and uh, this is your workplace deal. Yeah, there are a couple of episodes that do play into the fact that this is a nationally broadcast show. Coast to Coast Big Mouth is, I think, the season five premiere, and it is very much about that. And it's also another great, it's a great uh, Laura Petri episode. So I would also suggest watching that one, listeners. Um, yeah, so I want to move on to some... I'll add it to the list. Yeah. I want to move on to some trivia for this episode. Okay, great. Um, so the ratings, it's really, really hard to find weekly ratings for old TV shows, I have discovered. Um, but instead, they they give you the season average. So this show averaged 23.6 million viewers in its last year. Which, yeah, I'm going to assume that's a lot. Yeah, last week's episode of Friends was 30 million. So, like, 30 million in the 90s, 23.6. But the uh, this this episode... Or the show was ranked 16th for the season. So, um... Okay. Yeah. So, like, it had 23 million viewers. Well, I mean, of all the TV shows airing in that TV season, yeah, Dick Van Dyke's show for this season ranked 16th. Uh, Bonanza was number one for the year. 
And the Dick Van Dyke Show was sandwiched in between My Three Sons at number 15 and Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color at number 17. Ah, uh, yes, okay. Yeah. Uh, and then the, um, the IMDb user rating for this episode, which only 62 users have voted on it. Uh, 62 devoted users. Yeah. It's like, it's Dick Van Dyke and uh, the Van Dyke clan are all just voting on it. <laughs> the DVD heads. Uh, they gave this episode an 8.7. Would you go higher or lower, or is that right on the money? Um, I mean, I have very little to compare it with. Um, but I probably would go a little lower uh, in terms of what might be the... If it, like, the 10 would be the best episode of Dick Van Dyke, yeah. and 1 would be, like, the worst. I would probably maybe go a little, like, anywhere from 7 to 8. 8.7 seems pretty... Like, to me, this would be on a best of DVD. Yeah. And I don't know if I would include, just because people had pointed out, like, the highlight episodes, the best of the best. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. What, what would you say? I would maybe go nine. I don't, like, I mean, eight. Wow. 8.9. I mean, I think it's my, it is one of my specific favorite episodes of the show. But I do think it is, I mean, <laughs> It is kind of a point that, like, I picked this one because it's one of my favorites that no one ever talks about. So maybe there's, like, a reason no one else talks about it. Uh, yeah, and I'm trying to remember, I just, I remember I watched this episode for the first time in college, I think, and really remember watching it and being like, this is so tight and funny and it heightens so well, and it just always has stuck with me. So I kind of have, like, warm, rosy feelings towards this episode. So I, I'll say 8.8. .8. I'll go point one high. Nice. <laughs> um, another fun fact about this episode is that this episode was at the writers of the episode. It was actually inspired by their time writing for the Joey Bishop show because they also insulted him in the margins of the script and then they would wipe them out before giving him to him. Wow. So because Joey Bishop That's... was also apparently a uh, offensive egomaniac. Wow. That's such a bad idea to do. I feel like that's just going to, like, get you... One day that's going to backfire. I'm so amazed that they're like, well, we're going to do it. Just make sure we erase it in yeah. a way that he can't read what we erased. I bet, you know? I bet their discussions of, I wonder what would happen if we didn't erase it, they eventually just turned those discussions into this episode. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and fi uh, almost finally, um, who would you say has the must-see performance... Of this episode. Oh, I would definitely, I mean, it's Dick Van Dyke. Yeah. Because he's doing the majority of the physical comedy, and, like, a lot of the times he's in a room by himself. Um, he has to kind of crawl through this crazy bookcase at one point. So, yeah, he's, he's the MVP of this episode. Yeah, I would, yeah, I guess I, I can't say anything different. Like, I want to, like, disagree, but I can't, because he is doing everything in this episode, and it's so funny. If I had to give a runner-up, it would, of course, be Buddy, just because I love all those one-liners, but... That's every episode. Like, every episode of the Dick Van Dyke Show has at least, like, five or six good buddy one-liners. Mm, that's good. That's, that's, that's quality, quality buddy right there. <laughs> uh, would you say, would you tell other people, must they see this episode? Must they see this? I mean, I don't know, because I'm comparing it to five other episodes of uh, the Dick Van Dyke Show. Uh, and I would say, yeah, yeah, I think you'll get a kick out of it, and I, I think... Especially the heist aspect um, is still relevant today. Like, it still works in comedy today. So I would definitely say, yeah, check this one out. 
Yeah, and me too, of course. That's why we're talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's why it's on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, great. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Kirk. Thank you, Brett. For coming on and watching your fifth or sixth episode of the Digman Night Show. Yeah, and I, I, yeah, I watched uh, the this last night, and I watched the finale, because I was kind of curious how it would end. Oh, how? It ends with a clip show. Oh. <laughs> yeah, at that time, they didn't really have a concept of, like, series finales. And that is a... Hopefully through this podcast, I want to discover when they started realizing, oh, people care enough about these shows and these characters, we actually should send them off in some sort of way. Mm -hmm. They did sort of send them off. It does have a closure to it, um, again, at the risk of spoiling it, because it's him writing a book, and the book shows, like, five or six clips. Um, and then it just sort of ends, but it, it ends with, uh, Alan Brady wants to produce the book and the TV. He wants to make basically a, a Rob Petrie show. <laughs> and I think that's really funny. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, I think they're going to be writing for it again. Like they're just, the next show they do will be this show about his life. <laughs> Maybe we'll do that episode at some point on this show. Uh, where can people find you on the internet if they want to talk to you about anything, literally anything? Uh, Best place is on Twitter. You can find me on Twitter at Kirk Says, K-I-R-K-S-A-Y-S. And, yeah, well, we can chat about whatever you want within 140 characters. <laughs> and make sure you keep it political. Wait, no, no! <laughs> no, no, no! Please don't! Uh, I mean, you'll do what you want. <laughs> and that does it for this week's episode of Must Have Seen TV. Thanks again to my guest all the way from Los Angeles, Kirk D'Amato for dropping by and talking about the Dick Van Dyke show with me this week. Next week, I will be discussing the Golden Girls episode, Grab That Dough. You can stream or buy the Golden Girls on Hulu, iTunes, and Amazon Video. Again, that episode is Grab That Dough, one of my favorite ones. Until then, you can follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Tumblr at MustHaveSeenTV. If you like what you've heard, please, please, please rate and review Must Have Seen TV in iTunes. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at, at Brett White. Read my words at Decider.com. You can check out my sitcom t-shirts and stickers at tpublic.com slash user slash Brett White. Our theme song is Patricia's Moving Picture by The Go Team. Thanks to Acast for hosting the podcast. Thanks to you for listening. And I'll see you next week on Must Have Seen TV. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.